these are colonized nations that we consider to be part of Russia proper, even though, again, these are non-Russian nations themselves that remain colonized by, as we've seen yet again, another dictatorship in the Kremlin. Just over a century ago, in the aftermath of World War I, almost all of Europe's empires began the process of disintegration and decolonization. The Ottoman, Austro-Hungarian, and British empires all declined and fell in the first half of the 20th century. But only one empire has fought tooth and nail over the past century to remain intact, the Russian Empire. First is the Soviet Union, today in Vladimir Putin's imperial project to subjugate Ukraine and other parts of the former USSR under Moscow's control. Russia is the last European empire that has never fully decolonized, and this is one of the root causes of Moscow's persistently revanchist foreign policy. That policy will likely continue until Russia completes the process of decolonization. But how likely is that, and what would it take to bring it about? This question is now getting a fair amount of attention in policy circles. Today's guest authored an important new article on the subject and spoke about it at a congressional briefing. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the uber-hip borough of Brooklyn, New York, is journalist and longtime Kremlin watcher, Casey Michelle, author of the book American Kleptocracy. Casey also authored a recent article in The Atlantic titled Decolonize Russia and testified in a recent briefing on decolonizing Russia at the U.S. Helsinki Commission, a clip of which you heard at the start of this program. Welcome back to The Vertical, Casey. It's good to see you. Great to be back, Ryan. Great to have you. So, Casey, in your in both your article for The Atlantic and in your testimony before the U.S. Helsinki Commission on Capitol Hill, you link two phenomena. Post-Soviet Russia's attempts to dominate the states of the former USSR, such as Ukraine and, uh, and Georgia and Moldova, and Moscow's subjugation and repression of non-Russian ethnicities in republics within the Russian Federation, like Chechnya and Tatarstan. You wrote the following, Russian, Russia's history is one of almost ceaseless expansion and colonization, and Russia is the last European empire that has resisted even basic decolonization efforts, such as granting subject populations autonomy and meaningful voice in choosing the country's leaders. And as we've seen in Ukraine, Russia is willing, willing to resort to war to reconquer regions it views as its rightful possessions. If you could link for our listeners, because we have two think, two distinct things here that you say are related. Russia's uh, attempts to dominate the former USSR, countries that are independent now and have been independent for a generation, and it's the way it treats the non-Russian republics within Russia. You see these two things as linked. So if you could make this link for our listener, then I'm going to want to follow up because I think there's some practical and security dilemmas that this raises. Yeah, absolutely, Brian. That's a great question. Obviously, very happy to be back in the vertical with you. You know, the last few months, I think, have made a lot of folks kind of sit up and check their priors, check their understanding, their framing, their kind of broader conceptualization of how the Kremlin operates and what that has meant for Russian aggression abroad. One of the things that I, over the past few months, have been very interested in doing, both in, on the writing space and on the policy space, have been looking at the specific early 1990s through the Soviet collapse, through the Soviet dissolution, 
and how the end of the Soviet Union was, was understood and how that informed Western and especially American policy thereafter. And Brian, I'm, I'm sure you and listeners are perfectly aware that so much of the collapse of the Soviet Union was framed as, and in many ways is still framed as, simply nothing more than a victory over communism. The end mm -hmm. of the Cold War and the Soviet collapse are obviously often lumped uh, together with with one another, even though they were distinct phenomena, but viewed as simply a, a shift of a change of economic practice and beyond that, the kind of political construct in the region and the countries comprising the region. And there's much, you know, there, there's plenty of truth in that, absolutely. But one thing that was was missed and has come through so clearly over the past few months, as President Putin has kind of dropped any euphemism about what he is trying to do in Ukraine and then beyond that, other areas of the post-Soviet space in terms of colonization, in terms of reconquering, in terms of pure, unadulterated imperialism, the likes of which we haven't seen, frankly, in decades. I mean, it's very jarring to all of a sudden be thrown back into this mid-19th yeah. century yeah. phenomenon. But what that has done is reframed, in many ways, the Soviet collapse as one, not a victory, not only over communism itself, but over colonization, over a European empire that had never fully decolonized. Now, unfortunately, and I know we'll talk about this more as the conversation goes ahead, what we saw in the early 1990s is, on the one hand, the U.S. dragging its feet time and again to recognize these new republics, these new independent republics breaking away from the Soviet Union, including in places like Ukraine. Think most especially of George H.W. Bush's infamous Chicken Kiev speech, which yes. has only aged poorly. Uh, but that also allowed us to miss the kind of forest for the trees with all these other colonized nations comprising at that time, the Soviet Union and now the Russian Federation also pushing for sovereignty, if not outright independence itself. Mm. These are places, most especially like Chechnya, but by no means limited to Chechnya. This is Tatarstan, this is Buryatia, this is Komi. These are uh, uh, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 different colonized nations during the Soviet collapse, also pushing for sovereignty. And during the formation in the early years of independent Russia, the formation of the Russian constitution, being promised that sovereignty, not outright independence, but local control and a return toward the sovereignty that they had lost after that initial Russian conquest. So Brian, it's kind of a roundabout way of saying when we saw Putin before him, Yeltsin, and then Putin especially, consolidating power domestically, creating, as you well know, this power vertical, we missed that that was also Russian recolonization yep. of these territories, of these nations that had pushed for sovereignty from Moscow. And then that began expanding outward, as we well know, into the Moldovas, yep. the Georgias, and certainly now, most horrifically, the Ukraines of the world. Yeah, no, and this, I mean, we, we kind of had a similar experience in the in, in the early years after the breakup of the Soviet Union, but from different vantage points. My initial point of entry into the what was still the USSR at the time, and then it collapsed while I was there, well, I was in Tatarstan. I was in Tatarstan, and it was a real eye-opener. Um, because, you know, we in, in America during the Cold War, we tend to conflate the Soviet Union and Russia. And to be in a non-Russian part of the what was still the Soviet Union and then the post-Soviet Union to be in Tatarstan and see the aspirations of the Tatars and see how they did see themselves as separate and distinct and did want local control there. They, they did want a degree of autonomy, which they managed to negotiate uh, and get from the Yeltsin presidency before Putin snatched it away from them. I think Tatarstan's a really, really interesting case here. But 
there, there's an issue I have here, and this is I, I want you to address this. I've talked to other other friends of ours that that, that kind of study this, not, not least of which uh, Jeff Mankoff, who just wrote a book on this subject. And this is the the following: supporting the sovereignty and independence of former Soviet states like Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova is pretty much a no-brainer. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's an absolute no-brainer. These have been independent states for. 30 years, um, and, and 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 in case of if many of them have have a, have a history of statehood before being incorporated into the into the Russian Empire, these countries have been independent for a generation, and their sovereignty is in the West security interests. So there's no question there. But when we talk about the current Russian Federation, while we certainly want to support the rights and freedoms of Tatars and Bashkirs and Chechens and Dagestan and others and other ethnic minorities under Russian rule. The dilemma is this, the logical conclusion of this, the logical conclusion of decolonizing Russia internally is the breakup of the Russian Federation. Now, this is probably beyond the West capabilities. Let's be really, really clear about that at the outset. But it's also arguably, and I think this is uh, what the Russians would call Sporivaforos. You can argue about this question, <laughs> but it, it's, it's probably not in the West's interest given the security challenges that this would present, like not least of which, where the hell do the nukes go? That's an issue. The other issue yeah. is when the Soviet Union was breaking up, we knew the 15 parts it was going to break up into. It's the 15 union republics of the USSR. Um, inside Russia, that's complicated. That's complicated. I don't see many viable states in there. I mean, yeah. Tatarstan is a notable exception. Yeah. Perhaps Karelia. Uh, I can see the North Caucasus being a series of dysfunctional failed states, possibly. Um, but but how do you how do you thread this needle here? Yeah, yeah. No, Brian. Again, that's a great question. In many ways, kind of the question as it pertains to what comes next. How should Western policy and beyond that American policy shift moving forward? I mean, I I, I guess I would predicate or preface that question with kind of you know planting the flag and saying. The West is not going to be leading on this. No. This is not policymakers in Washington or London or Brussels drawing lines on a map and saying this polity will be free, this polity will be sovereign, this polity will be subsumed. We didn't even do that in 91. Exactly, exactly. In many ways, what we're having is a very similar conversation to actually what policymakers in the in the U.S. at least had in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Again, think of figures like Brent Scowcroft, the National right. Security Advisor under George H.W. Bush, who was advocating, as we now know from the records of the, uh, the conversation in the White House, for retaining the Soviet Union as a whole because of so many of those same concerns. Would Tajikistan, would Turkmenistan, would Azerbaijan become viable polities in and of themselves? And the U.S. was eventually pushed toward recognizing them rather than leading on that in and of itself. I mean, Brian, you, there are so many great questions in what you just asked. Which polities would be independent? Which polities would be sovereign? Which would comprise something new? In many ways, the responses to that are out of our hands. I think what I wanted to do with my article and certainly what I thought was so relevant as it pertains to the recent congressional hearing is, uh, again, planting a flag that I and, and I'm may well still be in the minority for this, do think full well that because of Putin's role of the dice in Ukraine, which as we now know was such a grave strategic error, I mean, frankly, as anyone could tell ahead of time, uh, tens of thousands already dead, uh, the gains of the Russian economy over the last 20, 30 years being snuffed out and will the Russian economy being slowly strangled as it accelerates toward outright depression, uh, to say nothing of the political stagnation and zastoy that uh, I know you you have talked yeah. about in plenty of uh, uh, conversations at the Power Vertical before. All of these ingredients are pointing in what would seem to be 
at least on my end, a relatively clear direction. That is to say local agitation for what was snuffed out in the 1990s and the 2000s, local control, local sovereignty of these colonized nations that still comprise the Russian Federation. Um, you know, again, this could be the first of many, many conversations as it pertains to specific policy. I did want to just include one quote from someone who studied this issue far more than I have. And this is a Russian scholar named Alexander Etkin, who you know focuses on, um, among other topics, Russia's internal colonization. He had a, a piece in the Moscow Times just the other day where he said, quote, I'm not calling for the collapse of the Russian Federation. I am predicting it. And that makes a difference, end quote. Uh, and again, you know, it's certainly easy enough for me to be sitting here in the U.S. and saying this is going to happen. This is what should be done. But pulling back a second, I just want to get this on people's radar moving forward. Perhaps it's not going to happen. Perhaps it's not even a likely scenario, but it's one that can no longer be dismissed out of hand. No, and it's something you're not the only one. There are many people that are seeing this. Paul Goebel, former U.S. State Department official, a famous Russia watcher, friend of friend of the podcast, a friend of mine. He says, and he has been saying for years, that he sees the exact same centrifugal forces pulling on the Russian Federation today that he saw when he was at state in the in 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 the late eighties. He saw pulling on the Soviet Union. So this might be it. it this might be something that is is is. Uh, is happening organically, and you you write um, you write decolonizing Russia wouldn't necessarily require fully dismantling it as then uh, then uh, the, the defense secretary Dick Cheney proposed uh, at the time. Um, the push toward decolonization would instead focus on making the kind of democratic federalism promised in the Russian Constitution more than a hollow promise. And you had a degree of this in the '90s. Tatarstan, in particular, had a lot of autonomy in the 1990s. Um, the problem with Russian federalism in the 90s, and you, uh, having been there and having covered it as a journalist, uh, was that it wasn't federalism the kind of the way that we understand it in the kind of James Madison you know, sense of the word. What I used to say, there were 89 subjects of the Russian Federation then, and I said, we had 89 little Soviet unions. You had little authoritarian mini-states, you know, where the reach of Moscow, the reach of Moscow was seen as almost a progressive uh, uh, force at the at the time, so the, you had this paradox. Now, now, I'm not saying what we have now is better by any stretch of the imagination, but you, you this was not without its problems. The other thing I would add on this is that once you open that Pandora's box, as Mikhail Gorbachev did in the 1980s, we saw the result. So these centrifugal forces that you talk about and that Paul Goebel talks about begin pulling it apart, and so I, I guess. Is is the inevitable result of this? Is the inevitable logical conclusion the breakup of the Soviet Union, or could Russia exist as a decentralized federal republic? And that that I I honestly have to say I do not know the answer to that question. Russia has never been a proper state; it's yeah, only yeah. been an empire. Yeah, uh, Brian. I mean, the, the, the quick answer to the to the last one is yes. Theoretically, it can exist as a, uh, a decolonized while still singular polity in and of itself, in many ways comparable to what we see in the United States of America. I mean, in many ways, and again, Brian, this is a conversation for a longer time, but the, the history of the US, the history of Russia are such mirror images of one another. Settler colonization, expansion over entire continents, and slow fits and starts toward 
what we see now, the U.S., I would argue, even though it has its issues, it still has mechanisms for writing itself politically and has already begun the process of decolonization, even though it hasn't uh, reached its final point whatsoever. Russia moving in the opposite direction under Putin and certainly accelerating over the past few months. I think to, to get back to the, the quote that you lifted earlier from my Atlantic article that, that decolonization does not mean the partitioning, does not mean the breaking up. It simply means at its basis, at its most basic, recognizing Russia as a European empire in the traditional sense that colonized myriad nations that weren't overseas but were over land uh, and that has not uh, even begun anywhere near the full process of decolonization in and of itself. There's no reason to think that with the right leadership, with the right structures, certainly with the right funding and the right outreach and in many ways from the Kremlin, the right amount of humility over Russian historic imperialism and the historic crimes that come with that, uh, that this can't be a successful federation as it should exist on paper, as it's supposed to exist in the Russian constitution, which again, all of these, as I described them, colonized nations signed up for in right. the early mid 1990s, only to see those levels of sovereignty snuffed out. Now, I, I will say, I, you know, I'm going to pepper this conversation today with a lot of quotes from a lot of folks who are far more well versed in this than I am. And this is a, a quote from um, a couple other scholars, Erica Marat and Botikos uh, Kasimbekova, um, which is also in the article. And they said, quote, as much as decolonizing Russia is important for the territories it formerly occupied, reprocessing this history is also key for the survival of Russia within its current boundaries. In many ways, and that's the end of the quote, in many ways, this is just a kind of a pressure cooker that is only going to continue building and building and building with all of these endogenous or exogenous um, uh, elements, financial, political, and on and on, that if it's not addressed soon, um, you know, I, I, uh, I would not be at all surprised if we're revisiting this in five years or a decade and we're talking about the actual fragmentation of the Russian Federation itself. Yeah, and, and one of the reasons I'm skeptical about the ability of Russia to create the kind of federation that, that, that we're talking about, this decolonized federal, federal uh, federation, is that the imperial impulse is so deep and i don't want to be essentialist here i don't want to slide into lazy determinism but the imp and you know this as well as i do and spending time over there the, the imperial instinct is just so so deeply ingrained um and that to change it would take what our our mutual friend james share um has called a revolution of the mind Right. You'd have to have a, a, a really you would have to have a catharsis and a revolution of the mind. Now, my great hope is losing in Ukraine will provide that catharsis. I hope. Yes. But I am still it's not a done deal. And this for what, 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 what this is why I say just like with the Soviet Union. What was a democratized Soviet Union? It wasn't the Soviet Union anymore because the because the, the Ukrainians wanted no part of it, the Baltics wanted no part of it, the Georgians wanted no part. Well, what I mean, do, do you know? Is 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 this the case in in the Russian Federation as well? So is the answer? It's either going to be like it is, or it's going to break up. This that is a great question, Brian. That is a question that is beyond me, and far be it for me to predict anything. It's beyond I, me, I do, that's why I, I'm asking. <laughs> I, I do think, I do think this is where the kind of reframing, re-understanding, readdressing the current iteration of the Russian Federation and even the Soviet Union in and of itself, uh, you know, re-understanding that as a traditional European empire that again, colonized nations that were over land rather than overseas, I do think uh, uh, searching through historical, uh, you know, uh, 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 post-imperial or late imperial processes does give kind of a better idea of what's coming next. And one of the things that I've been talking about with other scholars recently 
is the case of the 1956 Suez Canal crisis, which is, you know, doesn't really have anything to do with the post-Soviet space in and of itself. But this was the last gasp of the British and French empires to try to restore any kind of imperial semblance. Again, think of the French also in Algeria at the time. That going sideways, that going poorly. And all of a sudden you have this nationwide reckoning with the fact that empire is not something that can sustain itself. And frankly, it's not even worth it for the actual national polity in and of itself. Now, it's a lot easier to have those conversations when the colonies are far away and overseas rather than next door. Um, again, you can think of ongoing American conversations about colonization of other polities, whether it's in the, the states themselves or territories like Puerto Rico, like Guam, um, certainly you know former annexed countries like Hawaii. I'm not saying the U.S. is anywhere near complete on this whatsoever, but there are elements and other prior patterns that we can look to. I'm not going to say I'm optimistic. I'm not going to say I'm pessimistic. I, I have no idea where things are going to go. I can only argue that um, things are going to be moving in a very, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe unexpected, but uh, deleterious and damaging turn for President Putin in the not too distant future and for any of his hopes of restoring Russian empire itself. Well, yeah, no, it's interesting you mentioned the Suez crisis and say it has nothing to do with uh, Russian imperialism. Well, actually, <laughs> the, the, the West was distracted and that and that basically enabled a lot of yeah. what Russia was doing in Hungary at the time, this 56 yeah. invasion of Hungary. Um, and, you know, it, when you look at the history, and I know Ukrainians have come to refer to Russia as the Grand Duchy of Muscovy now, it's saying basically they call it Muscovy and not Russia. Um, and it, But if you look at that history, I mean, it was it, it started as an empathy. The Grand Duchy of Muscovy was not by far one of the weaker principalities that, yeah. that uh, at, at the time in what is today Russia, but it emerged by being the tax collectors for the uh, for, for 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 the Mongols right, that yeah. enabled them to, to 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 build power and then to be able to begin to conquer the other principalities around it and spread out steadily, uh, so, you know, eastwards, uh, southward, and and ultimately yeah. Yeah. westward. Um, before we move into the second half, where I want to talk about lessons learned, I did want to uh, touch on a couple of notes here, and you 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 um uh, you mentioned this this uh this decision to prioritize relations with Moscow in the early 1990s. I mean, a lot of this had to do with Gorbachev himself. And a lot of this had to do with the personal relationships that Gorbachev had built with Helmut Kohl, Margaret Thatcher, George H.W. Bush, and the, and the Western leaders of that time. A lot of it had to do with that the West highly approved of what Gorbachev was doing in the Soviet Union. He was basically, he was basically suing for peace in the Cold War. And so in that sense, the West wanted to continue dealing with that Soviet Union. And so in a lot of ways, when you think of George H.W. Bush's Chicken Kiev speech um, in 91, um, I mean, if you look at it from today's perspective, yes, you are right. It has not aged well. Um, if you look at it from the point of view <laughs> of 1991, and if you're looking at this, you know, from the Situation Room, uh, yeah, I could, I could, I can I don't necessarily agree with it, especially given where my where I am on Ukraine now and what I've learned about Ukrainian history since that time. But if you look at it from the perspective of that time, it, it's it's kind of understandable to a degree that the U.S. would want to prioritize relations with Moscow. Um, in that sense, does that ring true to you as well? Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. But I mean, this is one of the things and certainly one of the things that I've been doing on my end the last few months is looking through the actual minutes of these meetings and the memoirs that came afterward on the on the American side. And it's you know, I, I don't, the way I would phrase it is I don't fault them for making the decisions that they did. They made the best of a situation as it was unfolding. Clearly they were not leading on it. 
Um, and beyond that, there is a logic to the decisions that they ended up making, whether it's the personalization of relations with Gorbachev or even beyond that, um, uh, Clinton and, and Yeltsin, um, or maybe as we're going to talk about in the second half of the, uh, the conversation, you know, the U.S. looking away while Russian troops rolled into Chechnya throughout the 1990s and turning a blind eye to Chechens asking for, for aid. I mean, you see the logic to all of these decisions that are made. And I, this is not any kind of I don't know, ideological or or personal attack on any of the decisions that the Scowcrofts or the Bushes of the world made. What we can only hope to do is extract lessons from that period and mm. uh, implement those lessons as the opportunities present themselves moving forward. And again, this is a, uh, you know, it, it is an imperfect art, uh, it, as we know of, <laughs> certainly based on American foreign policy over the last 20 years or so, it can go awry uh, yep. to a remarkable degree that will only redound on, on us and damage us and American interests and broader Western interests. But you can only hope that um, the, the misses, the missed opportunities and the lessons as we understand them from three decades on will be implemented, can be implemented implemented or should at least be considered as Russia continues to hurdle toward um, what could be, what may likely be some kind of internal, whether it's uh, you know, decolonization, defederation, or even simply a push after Putinism as local sovereignty is restored and those local populations, those local nations can begin making certain decisions for themselves. Right. And to give, I mean, to give the, the, the former administrations on this their due, it's not as if we were ignoring uh, entirely the, the, the non-Russian former Soviet republics. There was a lot of work done, as you know, um, with civil society. You were, as a Peace Corps volunteer in, in Kazakhstan, you were a part of this um, as a, as a, as a the volunteer with, a, with an organization called Civic Education Project in Ukraine. I was part of this. Um, but there was a lot of outreach to civil society, um, both sponsored by U.S. government and, 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 and from the nonprofit sector. Um, and you had this effort to develop these civil societies in Ukraine, in Georgia, in Moldova, in Kazakhstan, and you began to see a payoff in this. Um, you began to see a payoff this in the early 2000s yeah. with the the the, the so-called color revolutions. Um, I do not believe these revolutions were some you know a plot hatched in Langley, um, but they were the culmination of work that civil society had done. You know, um, transnational civil society had done to develop these civil societies, and we saw the, re the the spectacular results in Georgia and Ukraine, with the Rose Revolution in Georgia in 2003, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in, in 2004, the Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan in 2005. Um, you saw this culmination of what I think was kind of a a long term policy investment that the West had made, and you did see a shift in policy in the early 2000s. Um, you, you 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 did. Um, I'd also add President Bill Clinton on one of his last international trips, he visited. Moscow, but then he visited Ukraine. And I remember, because I covered that trip, the, the the contrast in how he was received in Moscow, which was not very, very well, and how he was received in Ukraine, which was positively rapturous. Um, so 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 I, I, I guess there you you did see a shift. Was it just too little too late? Uh, I mean, it's certainly in certain ways, it's too little too late. I mean, again, as I've argued in the article and, and elsewhere, you know, there were a few key policy mistakes that the U.S. made in the 90s, one being simply uh, turning away broadly from uh, what we saw Moscow doing in Chechnya, both in the mid-90s and then obviously in the late 1990s, which in and of itself launched uh, 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 The Chechens didn't uh, help the themselves by turning to Islamic <laughs> extremism. 
No, they, they no, they didn't. But I will say, you know, in the early '90s, there was a clear desire for sovereignty and independence yeah. on their end. But I, I will say, you know, Brian, it has been an iterative process. There is no one single U.S. policy toward Russia over the past 30 years. There is no one single through line from administration to administration. It has been an, an iterative process yeah. over and over, which we obviously see now culminating in the Biden administrations. I mean, it, it wasn't even a. There wasn't even time for a reset. I mean, it was kind of just, uh, <laughs> well, you know, all hands that. on deck for uh, for that. And, and I will say, I do want to give President Clinton his due. I don't have the quote in front of me, but um, he was one of the uh, the few from very early days. There's a great conversation he had with President Yeltsin after Yeltsin had selected Putin, where uh, uh, Clinton um, uh, had, had frankly warned Yeltsin. He said, "I'm I'm concerned. This guy's not a Democrat. I'm worried about what he's going to bring to bear." And he was. President Clinton was one of the few voices at the time voicing those concerns about what we've seen with uh, President Putin for a, almost a quarter century now. Some of, uh, some of us in the media later. were voicing them. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I mean, I will, I will say, you know, uh, Frank, I know, Brian, you and I were talking about this off mic, but if more folks have been listening to either President Clinton back then or, frankly, you and the power vertical for the last decade or so, I do think we would have been in a little bit better place than we are now. The scales would have fallen from our eyes a lot sooner. I mean, there was a time when I had drank the Kool-Aid, too, but it, I got I got over it. Um, well, that's a good way to segue into the second half of the program. In, the, in a few minutes, we will continue our discussion and look ahead as well as back to ask what lessons can be drawn from the post-Cold War period to inform how we should approach an imperial Russia or perhaps a post-imperial Russia moving forward. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the uber-hip borough of Brooklyn, New York, is journalist and longtime Kremlin watcher Casey Michelle, author of the book American Kleptocracy. Casey also authored a recent article in The Atlantic titled Decolonize Russia. Russia. If you haven't read it, please do so and testified at a recent briefing on decolonizing Russia at the U.S. Helsinki Commission on Capitol Hill. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at PowerVertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical. The West, and especially the U.S., has to be ready because the West was not ready in 1991 when they did all that it could to try to keep the Russian Federation patched together and then turned a blind eye when the Kremlin began smothering the anti-colonial movement. So here's something I've been thinking about a lot later, lately. Sooner or later, Vladimir Putin is going to pass from the scene. He is not immortal after all. And if past Russian history is any guide... Periods of imperial expansion and domestic repression are usually followed by periods of retrenchment and reform, especially in the aftermath of losing a major war, which is certainly a very live possibility in Ukraine. Now, if and when this time comes, how should the West handle it this time? What can we learn from the mistakes we made in the aftermath of the Soviet collapse? Will we repeat the mistakes of thinking that the problem was a specific regime, communism then, Putinism now, when it really is a deep-seated imperial culture? What should we do next time? And this goes for whichever 
eventuality we have here because we don't know how this movie is going to end right now. It could end with a Russian victory in Ukraine and a renewed Russian imperial push that the West is going to have to deal with because every Russian empire begins with Ukraine, but no Russian empire ever ends with Ukraine. Right? That's one eventuality that we're going to have to deal with. I think what we have to do there is a little bit more straightforward uh, <laughs> than what we have to do in the other case. We dust off our George Kennan you know, and, and reinstitute <laughs> the policy of containment, um, with, among other things. But in the event that you do see one of these retrenchments yeah. in Russia, and um, again, we're going to have to be careful about mistaking the form for the substance, uh, as we did in the 1990s. Too many people were looking at the post-Soviet Russian Federation as if it were, I don't know, West Germany circa 1965 or something, right? Um, when in reality, and I know this from having you know been there throughout the entire Yeltsin period and the early Putin period, these imperial tendencies did not go away. Um, it wasn't under Putin that Russia started arming both sides in the Georgian Civil War. That was under that was under Yeltsin. It wasn't under Putin where Russia was uh, inciting ethnic Russians in Estonia, in Narva. That was under Yeltsin. Um, so the, the, these, these, these imperial tendencies are going to be there regardless of the external face that Russia shows to the world. I remember a conversation I was having with a friend back in 96, 97, when the Czech Republic, Poland, and Hungary were negotiating to join NATO, and she was really, really, really upset about this. It really bothered I said, why does this bother you? These are sovereign countries. And she said, well, they just want to be against Russia. I said, well, what are you going to do when Ukraine joins NATO? And she looked at me as if I had three heads. She Have you lost your mind? Are oh, Ukraine? I, I said it's not yeah. your Ukraine. It's their Ukraine. But Those but this more. but this was in the nineties. This was this was and this was a person who has fairly liberal political views. But this you know the the lib Russian liberalism stops at the Ukrainian border apparently. So just to go back, like what what are the main lessons, Casey, that you yeah. draw from the the, the post Cold War period? Yeah, Brian, that's a yeah, the great question I, you know, I, I again preface things by saying we're really only just starting this conversation right now it's only been what four months since the invasion of ukraine and obviously the the grave strategic error that that has presented for the kremlin and then whatever may flow from that both this year and in the years to come this is only a conversation that's happening right now so it's not as if there's some hard and fast policy playbook that i can kind of rattle off for you as it pertains to what mm -hmm. the u.s what the broader west should be doing itself but there's again i think kind of if we go back to the 1990s I, brian i think that was what you just laid out was an excellent summation of this kind of imperial identification, imperial mm -hmm. legacy, certainly, at least rhetorically, and as we now see militarily as well in Russia, because it wasn't President Putin that brought these things to the fore. Mm -hmm. We saw so many of this under President Yeltsin. Certainly, He Yeltsin's was a manifestation of, of, of exactly. political cultural tendencies. Exactly, exactly. And, and there is a reason that his base has lapped this up so very well, um, certainly over the last 20 years or so, although we'll see how much longer that continues moving forward. I, I, you know, I think there's, again, two primary lessons to be extracted from the 1990s. One is simply that. One is realizing and recognizing this imperial tendency, these imperial policies, this uh, uh, audience for uh, imperialism in and of itself, revanchism in and of itself, the attraction that that presents to a polity that still does not in many ways view itself as a traditional Russian power that, or excuse me, traditional European imperial power that simply views itself as a great bastion of progression and, and progressiveness that brought civilization to these backward cultures and backwards nations. And I will say there's been some truly phenomenal scholarship on this, especially out of Central Asia, as we see a rising cohort of younger scholars begin digging into the 
begin extracting, begin identifying these legacies, these policies, and really holding Russian colleagues' feet to the fire to address right. this and to uh, uh, I, not necessarily identify with this, but at least understand where or where these legacies uh, continue to lie. I do think in the 1990s, there was just such ignorance in the West of Russian expansionism, Russian imperialism. So many Sovietologists were first and foremost Russianists rather than being those that mm -hmm. studied any of the minority regions or uh, yeah. colonized nations. Um, that has changed significantly. We do have seen a remarkable flowering um, in the academy, especially over the last decade in the U.S. and elsewhere, to begin identifying, begin studying, yep. uh, and begin examining um, Russia's colonial legacy and imperial legacy in those regions. You know, that's that's one. The other one is, and again, maybe this is a bit beyond the purview of um, the conversation today, but Brian, I'm sure you've seen the last maybe month or two months, there's been this kind of sudden discourse around humiliating Putin, humiliating yeah. Russia, yes. and Western governments, especially those out of places like Germany or France, being concerned about being seen as humiliating Russia in and of itself. And one of the clear lessons from the 1990s is that you have no idea what these uh, what, what what policymakers in the country you're talking about are going to perceive as humiliation, either now or especially in the future. It's very clear that the West and especially the U.S. went out of its way. It bent yep. over backwards yes. to run to all policy. To be Exactly, exactly. To not only you know, keep the Russian Federation as a single polity in and of itself, but then to run all post-Soviet policy, at least outside the Baltics, through Moscow, deferring to Moscow, deferring to the Kremlin, making sure that they were not humiliating the Yeltsin government and then beyond that the Putin government and as we but know they still think we humiliate him. The exactly exactly humiliate. you cannot act out of concern about what will be perceived as humiliating you can only act out of concern for what you think is in your nations your governments your polities best interest because they are going to decide at some point if an and values exactly if another Putin style figure comes to power they will decide what they were humiliated by and there's nothing you can do about it no. whatsoever which is why I think to get back to your conversation about things like NATO expansion things like even basic recognition of Ukrainian sovereignty there is this just overriding and in many ways kind of quasi-imperialistic concern out of the U.S. itself about not stepping on Russia's toes and not seeing these independent countries as fully independent themselves. Yeah, no, and I'm I'm glad you raised NATO enlargement because th this this one drives me crazy. I've written a bit about this this alleged promise that that the Secretary James Baker, Secretary of State James Baker, uh, supposedly made to, to to Edward Shevardnadze about not one inch to the east. That was in reference to NATO troops and Soviet troops as the reunification with Germany was coming. It was not a talk about a broader broader enlargement of NATO by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's it's an absurd argument. There was no there was no the, Clinton had to be dragged kicking and screaming into enlarging. Yeah, he didn't want to enlarge NATO. He didn't want to deal with that headache. He was dragged from what I heard. He got cornered at a meeting by Lech Valenza and Václav Havel, and they just they they, they bent his ear until he he finally, finally he finally apparently said to Strobe Talbot, Strobe, you got to give me something better than this partnership for peace shit. You know, so, <laughs> I don't know. If that, I don't know if that's true. I'm quoting the former. It might president. be a paraphrase. I, don't, I, I, yeah. I, I, I was told by somebody in the administration that's about that, but works. but I mean, this is there was there was it was quite the opposite. I thought we were overly indulgent of Russia in the 90s. This to me is the biggest lesson, is in order to preserve this country that is nominally our partner in this regime that is, that is nominally our partner, although it's doing a lot of stuff that's not in our interest and certainly not in accordance with our values. To preserve this, we we bent over backwards to be magnanimous. And I think that I think was the biggest mistake. We turned a blind eye to corruption. 
Um, I'll never forget a taxi ride. I was in in Moscow and we drove past the Kremlin and the, the taxi driver looks at me and said, when are you Americans going to stop supporting these bandits? Right? And this was the, I mean, it was a feeling that America was complicit in the corruption that engulfed Russia in the 90s. And that that hurt our brand. That hurt the prospects for democracy and people that truly wanted to, to, to build democracy in Russia at the time. So I think that would be one of uh, of, of my biggest uh, things is, is not to be overly indulgent, to look at this with our eyes wide open. Because I think there was also a an epistemological mistake that we made. And that was that we looked at the Russian Federation, the post-Soviet Russian Federation, and it had all this stuff that we got, right? It's got a president and a cabinet and courts and a government and a, a parliament. It must be just like us, right? And we, and we, really what was going on, and you always know this as well as I do, is that these things were in no way functioning. They were a facade to cover up oligarchic rule. And we have to be able to this time be sure that we see the essence of what we're what what what, what is going on here. Beware of labels. Um, beware of labels. The old reformist hardliner dichotomy that was in the early 1990s. Um, and I, I have to recall and, and give a hat tip to my good friend Donald Jensen for an article he co-authored in 95 before I had ever met Don. He was at the embassy at the time, and I um, I it, it changed my thinking on post-Soviet Russia, because at that time, 94, 95, the big, you know, all the discussion was around this struggle between hardliners and and and, uh, and reformers. And Don wrote this piece saying, it's not that at all. It's clan warfare. It's clan warfare. Um, it's just all of these different uh, groups, different clans associated with different economic interests. And those that say they're pro-Western are doing so because they're dependent on Western aid. That's it. That's it. They don't. But but you had the oil and glass gas clan. You had the 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 arms export clan. You had all these the, the nascent financial industrial groups forming. So I would say the other thing I would say is that we you know see things for what they are this time. Don't fool ourselves into seeing what we want to see because I think there was a lot of wishful thinking going on. Um, anything to add there before I want to go into some of the big mistakes we made in that period? Yeah, no, Brian, I mean, I think the term you just used right there, wishful thinking, just hits the nail on the head. I mean, again, you see the logic of why policymakers were acting there the, the way that they did. They assumed or they figured that a, a democratic or semi-democratic Russia that had a market economy would become you know, maybe a big player, but still a quote unquote normal country. And again, they missed the forest for the trees. They were saturated in all kinds of wishful thinking. And here we are now. And the only thing I would I would add to that is at some point, as you said, Putin is going to be gone. At some point, there's going to be a retrenchment. At some point, theoretically, there's going to be kind of a swing of the pendulum back in the liberal direction. I, um, you know, what, what's the phrase? Fool me once. You know, shame on you. Shame on you. Right? Shame on me. Shame on me. <laughs> um, you know, we we have an opportunity to uh, illustrate that uh, we'll have learned lessons from that from that period, and I can only hope that Western policymakers implement those policies yeah. this time and aren't fooled yet again. I mean, looking at the specific things that I think were a mistake. I mean, yeah, George H. W. Bush's chicken Kiev speech. Now that I can forgive that, given the time that that was happening. Um, it was it was it was completely understandable from perspective of U.S. interests at the time, although, like you said, it did not age well. Um, the other thing, the Bucharest Memorandum. Um, uh, I'm sorry, not the Bucharest, but the Budapest. Well, the Budapest, memorandum. Yeah. Budapest Memorandum. I mean, now, the Bucharest without any hard and fast. Well, the Bucharest was yeah. a you know, that, that that would be next to my list is the is, is the Bucharest summit. But I mean, the, Bud the Budapest Memorandum. Now, that was a thorny policy problem we had at the time. 
Um, you had, what, uh, four countries that inherited the Soviet Union's nuclear weapons, the Russian Federation, Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan. And U.S. US led diplomacy persuaded these countries to give up their nukes and give them to, again, how is that humiliating Russia? Humiliate my ass that way. Give me somebody else's assets, right? But this was, I mean, and I was in Kiev when the Budapest yeah. memorandum signed. People were pissed off. Oh, I they were it. really, America sold us out. How could America yeah. sell us out like this? Yeah. That was the feeling among my friends in Kiev at the time. And I, I, you know, I found it hard to argue with them. I was making yeah. a broader, you know, thing about nuclear nonproliferation. And they're like, look, we're, 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 we want to preserve our sovereignty and independence. And we made promises to, to Ukraine that we did not keep yeah. there. Yeah. We would guarantee their, so did Russia by, by, by that matter. So that's another one. Um, the, yeah, the the Bucharest NATO summit in 2008, not not giving map to Ukraine and Georgia was a huge mistake, in my opinion. Again, all built around this, like, don't humiliate Putin narrative. But I was exactly. go, go ahead. You wanted to say something. I no, no, no. I was going to say, no, you, you're exactly right. So many you know, the through line for so much of this is don't humiliate. Don't rub their face in it. We have to make sure we have to kind of hold their hand and walk them to where we need them to go. And yet here we are, obviously, 20, 30 years later. And it is nothing but humiliation uh, that President Putin is claiming as motivation for why he is doing what he is doing yeah and then i mean i the, the overarching issue i have and this is something i've been giving a lot of thought to is promoting what today has come to be called neoliberalism um yeah. in those days was called the washington consensus um the washington consensus in the aftermath of the breakup of the soviet union this idea that i mean i've said i've made this point before this is one of my hobby horses right reaganism thatcherism this hyper laissez-faire form of capitalism was dominant in the west at the time the so the, the the cold war ended and it's a legitimate part of economic discourse though i don't want to say like discredit this like it's a it, it's you know our the beauty of the of, of the west is we kind of we make adjustments you have times when you need more laissez-faire and you have times when you need more state and more regulation and more redistribution and we've we, we've kind of gone back and forth between these you know the new yeah. deal and reagan are the you know the, the points on the pendulum here um but because neoliberalism was ascendant and dominant at that time it became scripture and it became kind of embedded in our economic it became doctrine it stopped being an economic theory that we apply to specific conditions and became doctrine and not just for america we spread it out to the whole damn world Right, uh, or at least the former oh, yeah. communist world, and I think this, this was, this is the cause of a lot of our ills. Do you do you have any thoughts on that? No, Brian, absolutely. I know you and I have talked about this in 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 the uh, in the past itself, and again, you know, this is a conversation, a far broader conversation for another time. But in so doing, not only did that. Uh, so these kinds of, uh, uh, you know, the seeds that we're seeing flower right now, certainly economically, but they also beyond that politically, but it also opened the doors in the U.S. for illicit, suspect, dirty, um, exactly. Kremlin-connected cash to come in and flood markets, uh, flood political donations, and then upend uh, policy and broader democracy in and of itself in the West. I think one of the points that, Ryan, I, you, I believe, were the first to make this point that I, that I recall, you know, uh, you know, this question, you know, this kind of counterfactual hypothetical uh, if the Soviet Union had collapsed not under 
yeah. uh, Reagan or Bush, but under the Eisenhower administration in the 1950s. And I always thought that was a great point because it does force you to examine the role, again, of these broader economic policies and, and the fallout from that. But what I hadn't actually thought until just now is not only is it the economic space, but would we have had a far better understanding of Russia than the Soviet Union as a, a again, traditional European empire right. full of colonized nations trying to declare independence, trying to declare distance from the imperial capital, again, not overseas, but yep. over land, as simultaneously the British and the French empires were you know, uh, uh, kind of on their last legs as well. Would we have had a better idea rather yep. than having to wait 30, 40 years later and seeing it simply as a victory over communism? I um, I don't know. That's something I'll have to wrestle yeah, with. No, yeah, no, these, are, these are great, great thought experiments, but they're actually yeah. useful heuristics as we yeah. as we're preparing for a time that is coming, Casey, that yeah. you and I and others that kind of operate in this weird space between media, academia and the policy world, <laughs> we we're going to, you know, we're going to we're going to expect be expected to have something to say about this. And I think these, these thought experiments are really, really useful. I mean, the overarching mistake we made in the 90s is the belief that globalization would solve all our problems, that yeah. money was politically neutral, capital was politically neutral, uh, that, that when in reality, and this kind of links your your and my two obsessions, imperialism and kleptocracy, uh, uh, it, it was enabling the, the, the use of kleptocracy for imperial purposes, this belief that money was politically neutral, the, the belief that God, like conflict would be subjugated, would, would be subsumed into harmony in this wonderful, let's all hold our hands and sing kumbaya, you know, globalized world that, that we all thought we were living in. And I, quite frankly, I, I drank the Kool-Aid too in the early 90s. I drank the Kool-Aid too. Another interesting thought experiment that I just had recently, I uh, was at, at the GlobeSec Forum in Slovakia and with, with, this was brought up, is um, imagine, and this is by no means a political statement. I voted for President Clinton twice. Um, but imagine George H.W. Bush won the 92 election, mm -hmm. right? Now, Clinton came in with this, this neoliberal kind of view. This was not the view at the time of the George H.W. Bush administration. These guys were hard-nosed realists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And would, you know, would Brett Scowcroft dealt with Russia differently than Strobe Talbot, for example? Um you know, uh, would uh, would 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 James Baker have dealt with Russia a little bit different than than than, than Warren Christopher and later Madeleine Albright? I mean, and this is by no means to, to disparage anybody here, but it's to say they would have had a different view on it. They might have had a a a less benign view of what post-Soviet Russia was. Do, yeah, do, yeah. No, like, I mean, you've been, you've been reading the memoirs and reading the. <laughs> The, the minutes of the meetings, which I actually want to get my hands on. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, a great place to start is Robert Gates's uh, Bob Gates's memoir um, in which he goes into some of these details about the internal conversations, uh, as well as um, uh, Vladislav Zubok's new book on the, uh, the Soviet collapse, which is a very, very dense book, but a fantastic look, very granular look at all of these uh, conversations that were happening on both sides of the uh, of the Atlantic. I think, Brian, this gets back to our earlier conversation that this has been an iterative, iterative process. There hasn't been one consistent American, consistent Western policy on this. I mean, you could even fast forward to the last decade, decade and a half. You know, if John McCain had won in 2008, would there have been a reset that we would have seen? Uh, if John Kerry had won in 2004, would there have been this kind of slow walk um, move toward uh, trying to restore Georgian sovereignty during the war that broke out uh, in 2008. I mean, God knows how things, uh, how different things may have been in 2016 if Hillary Clinton had won versus um, uh, Donald Trump. I mean, these are the kind of counterfactuals we only ever get to just wrestle around with intellectually. But I, I do think, I mean, I don't know, I say this knowing full well that the 2024 election could go any number of ways. Any we'll number see, of ways. But, <laughs> but it, it, it you know, behooves us 
you and me and all those others that exist in this weird space between academia <laughs> and policy journalism uh, to have you know the kind of conversations we're having today to kind of broaden our imagination about what may be coming, what will be coming. It's a really kind of end of these days of wishful thinking that in many ways got us to where we are right yeah. now. No, and I'm uh, truth, uh, truth, uh, truth told here. I'm actually uh, using my podcast to pick your brain because I'm I'm recasting my book right now, which has been uh, had, I have to I have to totally redo after the uh, after the Russian invasion of of Ukraine. But this is um, no; these conversations are extremely useful yeah. to have. Um, what we do know is successive administrations have. I, I, I want to be careful how I phrase this. I don't want to say got it wrong because I don't think that's fair. Uh, it's really easy to sit on the sidelines and, and, and to criticize those who are in the situation room making the decisions. But what we had was all right, George H.W. Bush basically trying to keep the Soviet Union together in, 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 you know, in, 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 at that point. Understandable from a U.S. policy perspective, mm -hmm. but wrongheaded from you know the, the benefit of hindsight 30 years later. Um, you had Bill Clinton overindulging Yeltsin um, in, in uh, throughout his administration. Um, you had George W. Bush looking into Putin's eyes and seeing his soul. And, and um, you know, this, uh, this idea that Russia is a problem that's solved, that we could just park it and we can move on to other things. And Russia, uh, the thing is that Russia has a say in that. Yeah. <laughs> and they're going to, they're going to continue to have their say in it. Um, you had, you know, the reset under President Obama, um, which I, truth told, initially was a supporter of. Mm -hmm. um, I, it didn't, my, my position on that has not aged well. Um, I quickly moved away from it where I saw, but mm -hmm. but but I was initially a supporter of that. I thought there was a possibility. I saw it from a very from, well, especially with the Medvedev presidency. Not I, because I, I had a benign view of Russia. I saw an opportunity yeah. to split the Russian elite. I yeah. saw I saw that by by denying them an enemy, we could split the elite. I thought that was my thinking. I don't know. I don't think that was. I'm not sure if that was President Obama's thinking. Um, but my thinking was uh, that and I want to get Michael McFall on the program to talk oh, that'd be great. about yeah. the reset in a really granular way and, and to, yeah. to, to, to to unpack it at some point. Michael, if you're listening, you're you got an open invitation. Um, anything you? I'm looking at the clock, mindful of my uh, mindful of my production team's time. No, but, uh, 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 Brian. I mean, you, you're exactly right, and I. I do hope much of this is examined in your book, which I obviously can't wait to read. And there's anything further I, I can do to help. I can't wait to write it. <laughs> no. um, but, you know, I, I will say, you know, it's, it's one thing. And again, so much of the, the conversation today has been directed at Western and especially American policymakers, if they're listening, or potential future policymakers, um, what American policy can be, what Western policy can be, should be, will be. And again, lessons to be learned. And I, I just want to, again, couch this in saying, you know, I'm an American, you're an American, we're two Americans talking about the process of decolonization in Russia and just, just kind of reflect on the fact that it is the Russian nationals themselves that are going to be the ones that are having the conversations. It is those members of colonized nations. It's those ethnic Russians. It's those that are still in Russia or elsewhere that are going to have to face these hard truths and make these difficult decisions. And I will say these conversations are, are already going in a, uh, 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 going just over the past few months. I'll, I'll, quote, I'll, I'll close with a, um, a quote from a, you know, a pretty well-known Russian uh, writer, Leonid Brzezinski, who's not exactly the most vociferous anti-Putin voice out there. But, but he had a piece the other day in the Washington Post where he wrote, and I'll just quote it here, uh, I still hope against hope that democracy and an end to aggressive imperialism, a commitment to the equal development of territories and a true equality of all ethnic groups are possible within Russia's current borders. This hope, however, may well be no more than an atavism. Russia doesn't carry its size well. Perhaps it will never learn. And this is no. The that's I mean, Lonia's a smart guy. Um, I don't always agree with him, but he's a, he's a very smart guy. One last thing I would say is that you know we should have been listening to those who know Russia the best. We over, yes. over and over yes. and over again. A hundred percent. Yes. 
the Baltic states and Poland and saying you're just being Russophobic. And they turned out to be right. And I hope when this is all over, and I I hope this will be a part of my book, I want to like the lessons we can learn from our friends and allies in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, the Czech Republic, Slovakia that have that know this better than we do. Um, listen to the Ukrainians, listen to the Georgians, because they know it. They're not paranoid. It's not paranoia if it's really happening to you. Right? So I think that would be my my parting shot is. And I, I, I had Tom Ilvis on, on the podcast a few weeks back. He's always a great guest to have. Oh, yeah. um, and and, and the, these are I, mean, I think we owe a lot of these people an apology for, yes. for dismissing their concerns yeah. when they were absolutely right and very, very, very 100%. prescient. On that note, we'll wrap it up. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the uber-hip borough of Brooklyn, New York, someplace I want to visit again soon, is journalist and longtime Russia watcher Casey Michelle, author of the book American Cryptocracy. Casey also authored a recent must-read article in The Atlantic titled Decolonize Russia and testified before a very important briefing on decolonizing Russia at the U.S. Helsinki Commission in the United States Congress. Thank you, Casey, as always, for an enlightening discussion. Thanks so much, Brian. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Dylan Holberg is ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Dylan's also handling our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes, and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.